Welcome. You have entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simron. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Empower yourself. Broaden your mind. Open your heart and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simron. Good morning and welcome. It is a pleasure to be with you on this powerful full moon in May. It is an astrological wonder that is happening this evening and it is taking us into an eclipse season as well. And that makes this conversation that much more powerful because full moons are about allowing things to close and allowing something new to begin. Oftentimes grief is the emotion and the experience that we most try to avoid. We have become a very heady society, very much living in our minds. And so it's easier to live from the neck up than to feel everything that is coursing through our blood and our bone from the neck down. Grief is one of those things that we don't realize could actually be a backdoor to enlightenment. It opens us to many different things, but most of all, to a sense of deep peace, but we have to go through that birth canal in order to get there. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Claire Willis. She is the author of Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace, and it is filled with wonderful uh, presence exercises and breath work that assist you in moving through grief, along with some beautiful poems and her own insights and writings. I'm going to start off with a poem in the book by Ellen Bass titled The Thing Is. The thing is to love life, to love it even when you have no stomach for it, and everything you've held dear crumbles like burnt paper in your hands, your throat filled with the silt of it. When grief sits with you, its tropical heat thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than lungs. When grief weighs you like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief, You think, how can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes, and you say, yes, I will take you. I will love you again. Claire Willis is a clinical social worker who has worked in the fields of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years, a co-founder of the Boston nonprofit Facing Cancer Together. Claire has led bereavement, end-of-life support, and therapeutic writing groups. She's co-taught spiritual resources for healing and mind, body, and soul at Andover Newton Theological School. She maintains a private practice in Brookline, Massachusetts, and as a lay Buddhist chaplain ordained by Joan Halifax. She focuses on contemplative practices for end-of-life care. For the past five years, she has been a student of Koshin Paley Ellison, a founding teacher at the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Besides opening to grief, Claire has been the author of Lasting Words, a guide to finding meaning toward the close of life. Welcome, Claire, to 1111 Talk Radio. It's a pleasure to have you here. I cherish your book deeply. It's a thin book, but it is packed with exactly the essence of what is required to move through grief. And I cherish it so much because I experienced my own grief. And I've often wondered myself if I took too long in my grieving process because it seemed to be almost a five-year to seven-year cycle. And even now, I'm just getting completed with that grief from a loss in 2014. And so when I read in your book that Grief takes as long as it takes, and sometimes for some people it may take uh, a month, and for other people it can take years. Even in that is solace, because I often wondered, am I in a place of grief, or am I in a place of depression, or am I in a place of self-pity? Can you talk about the distinctions between those three? Um, Yes, but before I do, I want to read you something that I didn't find before I wrote the book, and I'm so sorry I didn't. Um, <clears throat> because I, it's a way of thinking about grief that I've just come to love. And it, they're not my words, but I want to read these by um, an author named Jamie Anderson. And she writes, Grief, I have learned, is really just love. All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. 
Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I often say when I'm working with people who are grieving is that um, denying your grief is denying your love. And we don't stop loving someone because we've lost them. So grief really is a, is a companion and it changes over time. When we first lose somebody, it's, it's the walls, it's the ceilings, it's the color of the floor, it's all the furniture is gray, and there's a searing pain. It's all we see. And over time, the searing pain comes into being more like a dull ache. And it's a little bit like breaking a bone. You break a bone and it's, it just is so painful at first, and then you maybe have it cast and set, and then you have PT, and then you're walking again, but on a rainy day, the bone will ache. And so I think of grief that way, that it really never completely goes away, but it certainly changes in intensity and frequency and duration. And one of the differences between that and depression um, or chronic grief is that with depression, you're, you, you don't have moments of life, light. Um, grief comes in waves. It comes up and down because we can't take it in the full catastrophe of what we've lost in one sitting or two sittings. And so it comes and, and it goes, and that's what protects our psyche. And Stephen Levine has a beautiful quote. He says, looking at death is like looking at the sun. We look, we turn away, we look, we turn away, because if we stare at it, we'll burn our eyes. So the, the wave-like element of grief is very protective. You know, it's it's a fascinating time that this book came out. You couldn't have planned it more perfectly, particularly with what has occurred in the last 15 months. I think that people having to be with themselves, they either encountered the grief in facing the loss of loved ones or their jobs or their lifestyles or whatever the pandemic brought on. And in other cases, it may have been that people had to be with themselves in a way that they faced emotions that had built up inside that they had not dealt with for a very long time. And so to open to our grief gently and in a loving way that it doesn't overwhelm us, what would you say are the first steps to allowing that in and, and not beating ourselves up for having these kinds of emotions? Because I think people try to push this away or judge it as wrong to feel this way for any amount of time, regardless of what they've been through. Yeah, that's, um, that's such a good point. Um, so often we have a feeling and then we judge it. And part of the problem is that there are certain models of grief that are floating around in our culture against which people tend to compare themselves. And so the first chapter in our book, which we wrote very deliberately as the first chapter, is the practice of kindness and of compassion, and of meeting whatever comes your way uh, with openness and kindness. And I think one of the, the things that has been confusing for people, Simran, is that people think of grief as sorrow and sadness, but grief has so many presentations. It can be irritability, it can be impatience, anxiety is a big one, um, anger, rage, um, um, gratitude, regret, relief, all of those are also expressions of, of grief. And I think one of the things that happened with the pandemic, and I, I love what you say about people being thrown into their own resources and to feelings that in the past they may have been able to distract themselves with because of life being more opened. But one of the things that, that COVID has done is that it has resurrected for people previous griefs they didn't grieve. So David Brooks wrote a wonderful article in the New York Times at the beginning of the pandemic, and he asked his readers how they were doing. And in like three days, he had over 5,000 replies, and he summed up his column by saying, there's a river of grief flowing through our, our culture. And I love the idea of a river because water seeps everywhere. So COVID brought to everybody, even if it was simply the loss of life as you knew it. But it also resurrected any losses that we hadn't grieved. And so it, it sort of got compounded. And if we don't tend to our sorrows, they will come back 
over and over and over again. So that's a that's one thinking about why it's important to allow grief its full expression. I love how you identified grief as having many faces. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about all of the other things that have taken place in our country, particularly uh, over the past few years. And whether we look at things from a political standpoint, whether we look at some of the social activism, whether we look at uh, the situations of violence or Black Lives Matter or issues around women and all these things could have had the faces of anger and protest and rising up or frustration and all, all that comes with that. But at the very foundation, is it, is it grief? Is that the thing that we need to face most of all to really find the solutions and the freedom within some of these uh, other symptomatic and uh, outward expressions? You know, I, uh, this is such an interesting question you're asking. Um, the word passion, um, the things about which we're passionate, the derivation of the word passion is suffering. And we're often passionate about places where we've suffered. And one of the things about the multi-faces of grief is that anger is a very common expression of grief. And it's a safer way to express our grief because it gives us a sense of agency. It allows us to act and not to feel the helplessness and the vulnerability. And I think there's something to be said for using our anger in the service of our grief rather than being at the effect of it. You know, that we're, we don't become the feeling, but we use the feeling to activate and do work that's going to be healing for the world. Is there a distinct difference between the way men and women are able to experience, express, and integrate their grief? I, 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 let me say this. this is a, I feel like this is a hard question because I think a lot of this has to do with the way we socialize our men. Having said that, um, most of my support groups are filled with women. I don't have a lot of men in my support groups, and I think that that because of the different ways we've socialized males and females, that women are more comfortable expressing their grief in the form of sorrow and helplessness and and hopelessness. And men, uh, I think, tend to express it differently and often can sublimate it to work. Men don't seem to to, uh, uh, seek out the social support uh, bereavement group kinds of uh, resources that women do. And I think that's a phenomenon of socialization. So as a Buddhist chaplain, you have started the book also from that place of inviting us all to have beginner's mind when it comes to letting go of our judgments and our self-criticisms to be able to plunge into grief. When you talk about beginner's mind in this way, especially approaching something that can be so heart-wrenching and gutting, what does beginner's mind look like in this place? Um, beginner's mind looks like being willing to not know. Um, I think what happens for most of us is in the face of uncertainty, we want to get some firm ground underneath ourselves. And so we create narratives of what our life will be, what it was, and what's possible in the present moment instead of just coming to the present moment and allowing whatever intimacy and being with it is possible. I know that for myself, when I get scared, I can project fear in the future. And the practice reminds me to stay in the moment. I think the other thing about um, about staying with grief is remembering that everything is impermanent. The good and the difficult, both are impermanent. So we can be overwhelmed with sorrow, but that doesn't mean we're going to be overwhelmed with sorrow 20 minutes from now, or we can be delighted, but we're not going to be delighted necessarily in 20 minutes. And so how do we allow these feelings, whatever they are, to flow through us, knowing that they're all temporary, they're all impermanent? That's a really difficult thing to do, but it's a worthy aspiration. 
My guest today is Claire Willis. She is the co-author with Marnie Crawford Samuelson for the book Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. Each chapter concludes with a simple meditation, and they also allow a few suggestions as starting points for your own explorations. They don't intend this as homework or instruction, but as simple, simple actions and reflections to consider to leave aside, or to adapt to your own experiences and interests. In part two of this book, they answer questions that people often ask in Claire's bereavement groups. And in part three, there are deepening practices where they offer more detail about the practices they've introduced earlier. In part four is a list of their favorite poems, and there are some beautiful poems throughout the book. If there is one book that you pick up this year, I highly recommend you pick up Opening to Grief. For each one of us to face our grief, to hold it, to absorb it, and to allow it to fully anchor in and release, we open ourselves to more aliveness in our lives and to more joy and peace. We also are the example to other people in how to walk through some of the most difficult things while also still living a life of full aliveness. You can find out more about Claire's book at openingtogrief.com. That's openingtogrief.com. Once again, pick up your copy of Opening to Grief, and while you're at it, you can also pick up her additional book, which is Lasting Words, A Guide to Finding Meaning Toward the Close of Life. We'll be right back after these messages. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Do you want more, more joy, more abundance, more power and presence? How would it feel to have more loving relationships, more empowered community, greater fulfillment and life purpose? The 1111 Mastermind Community inspires, empowers, guides and supports transformation. Shift your mind, expand your heart, deepen insights, let go and chart a new course, dream a new dream. The 1111 Mastermind Community is an online portal for personal transformation and soulful expansion. Go to courses.1111mag.com. That's courses.1111mag.com. Change begins with you. Let it be simple, convenient, and transformative. The time is now. Step through the 1111 Gateway. Courses.1111mag.com. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at IamSimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. Today we are speaking on a profound subject, and it has to do with grief. My guest is Claire Willis, and she is the co-author, along with Marnie Crawford Samuelson, of the book Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. It is a powerful little book that will take you step-by-step in working through your own grief, but also having an understanding of the many ways it shows up and how we can breathe through it and allow it to bring us through to the other side to live more authentic and carefree lives. 
Claire is a clinical social worker who has worked in the fields of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years. She's the author of this book, Opening to Grief, in addition to Lasting Words, a guide to finding meaning toward the close of life. Marnie Samuelson is a documentary photographer, filmmaker, and storyteller, the principal photographer of two books, The Wild Braid, a collaboration with Poet Laureate Stanley Kunitz and Poet Janine Lentine, and Lasting Words with Claire Willis. Her photos have appeared in national and international magazines, including Newsweek, People, U.S. News and World Report, and Smithsonian. You can find out more about Marnie at bostonpicturegroup.com and more about Claire and the book Opening to Grief at openingtogrief.com. Opening to Grief is an invitation to be with your grief in all of its depths and to find your unique way to peace, balance, and acceptance. This slim volume encourages you to begin wherever you are and to offer yourself kindness at time of loss and suffering. Open to any page and you'll find comfort and inspiration, as well as profound practices anchored in mindfulness and meditation. There are chapters that describe how art and writing and spending time in nature often offer paths to healing, and how we help each other when we act generously and create beloved community. The essential messages of opening to grief is that grief and love are intertwined. Welcome back, Claire. I want you to go back into a little bit more about the beginner's mind and also share how being an example of utilizing and expressing our own grief can really help to shift our world. Thank you. Um, So coming back to the idea of beginner's mind, as I was saying before, what happens is that in the face of uncertainty, we tend to create a narrative. And for the most part, the narrative is not what's happening and not what will happen. I think when we're grieving, there's there's a very strong tendency to look back and ruminate. And there's a strong tendency to look forward and catastrophize because we often can't imagine our life going forward without that person. And so we're filled with fear and the thoughts we tend to think are not thoughts that are going to, are in sort of a healthy neighborhood, let me put it that way, and they're completely normal. So I think the practice of a beginner's mind of of staying with and reminding ourselves that we just don't know and taking each moment as it comes is a tough practice, but it's a really necessary practice to counter the tendency to catastrophize or to ruminate. And in terms of being examples to others, one of the things that happens with people who are grieving is that when someone dies, I hear this a lot, people will say, the people I expected to come forward and be with me disappeared and strangers came forward. People I didn't expect came forward to be of support. And so I think one of the ways that we can really be a gift to other people is by allowing ourselves the full expression and familiarity and kindness towards our own grief because we can't tolerate in other people what we don't know our way around in ourselves. So I think often the people that disappear in the face of a loss are people who are frightened by death, who don't know much about their own grief. So in being with our own grief and allowing it to tenderize us and open us, we become um, a more healing presence for others that are grieving. And so I think that's one of the reasons that it's so important to do this work, because it really allows us to be of service to others, and it also deepens our relationship to ourselves. You said something that I want to go back and expound on, because I think this is something that when you're grieving, you do end up going through. And I know that in my own process of grief, I was almost shocked and uh had to experience further grief because of family and friends turning away. And I eventually Mm -hmm. came to this realization that they couldn't be with my grief because they couldn't be with their own, that they didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do. And it was easier to be quiet and pretend that things weren't existing as they were than to actually be present. And so oftentimes grief can be a very isolating experience. It can be one where not only does it feel physically alone, but where within your own mind and heart, you kind of cave in and shrink back from life. Can you speak to a little bit of that and what you would offer as guidance to individuals as they move through their grief process or if they're going through an experience currently? 
Yeah, that's, um, that is a question and that's a dilemma people feel a lot is how do we balance the need for solitude versus relatedness? And I hear one of the things I hear in my bereavement groups a lot is so-and-so asked me out and I didn't feel like going. I didn't want to go, but when I went, I was glad I did. I hear that a lot. So the question, you know, there's something about difference between solitude and isolating. And isolating is a decision to make to be alone that's more from fear. Solitude is something that nurtures us. And I think each person has to figure that out for themselves. But finding that balance between being with others and being with ourselves is really an important one. And it's different for everybody. And every day is different. So one of my friends said to me recently, when my husband died, I didn't want to go out with anybody, but I wanted people to call me and invite me out because that made me feel like they were thinking of me. And I, I love that. And I think that's an important thing to remember is that when someone you know has lost a loved one, keep in touch, keep in touch and keep extending yourself, even though that person may not be able to reciprocate. When we look at the function of the brain, uh, I know in the book you write that the brain has a negativity bias, that we Mm. actually lean in that direction. And I've often thought myself that human beings are naturally negative, that that it requires work to align to our highest self, to become positive, to to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Otherwise, it's easy to slip into that other side. Talk a little bit about that brain's negativity bias and what we must do to right that neurological imbalance. I, I'm so glad you asked me. This, this is my favorite topic, Simran. So I, we put in our, in our book, in one of the chapters, a chapter called uh, Being with Gratitude. And it probably strikes those some of you as, what a strange thing. Why would you have a chapter on gratitude in a book about being with grief? So I want to say, before I say any more about the negativity bias, that the reason to have a gratitude practice is to strengthen your ability to hold your sorrow, your grief, and your suffering. It actually strengthens you and makes you more resilient. So having said that, this negativity bias is actually something that in ancient times helped us survive. That If we didn't see what was a threat, we would be prey to it. But unfortunately, we continue to be hardwired in that way. So if you think about a typical morning in your house, you, you get up, you use the toilet, you might make a cup of coffee or tea, you might get in your car and go to work or go somewhere. But if the, and you don't notice that everything worked that morning, you know, the toilet flushed, the coffee maker worked, your car worked and you got where you're going. But if the toilet clogs up or the coffee maker overflows or you have a fender bender going where you're going, you may say to yourself, "Ugh, I've had a tough morning. It didn't go well. So our attention is often not grabbed until our expectations are broken and our, our minds are hardwired to remember negative things. When something difficult happens, it has a huge impact. And we don't forget the impact. We may forget the details, but we don't forget the impact. When positive things happen to us, they flow through us like water over Teflon. We don't remember them at the same degree we remember the negative. And it just has to do with how we're wired. So one of the ways we can come into more balance, strengthen our resilience, strengthen ourselves to carry more sorrow, is by lingering for 20 to 30 seconds with whatever is beautiful, with whatever is positive. So it's spring here in New England and everything's in bloom. So instead of walking by a bunch of tulips and just noting how beautiful, stopping and really allowing myself to take in the beauty of that through all my senses for 20 to 30 seconds begins to rewire my brain. So one of the things that's really important to remember is that we're not talking about not noticing what's wrong. We're never talking about that, but we're talking about noticing what's right alongside what's wrong so that we make ourselves a lot stronger. In, a, in an intimate relationship, it takes five to ten compliments to offset one negative comment. And 
any, any of you that are in a marriage or a partnership know how a critical remark can hurt. And it's a lot of work to undo it because the mind, that negative comment adheres in our memory uh, in a very strong way. So one of the things that we talk about in the book is how important it is at the end of the day to write down three to five positive things that happen for which you feel grateful. And it might be as simple as um, I turned on the faucet and the water came out clean or I was able to breathe in clear air or someone brought over um, a casserole to me tonight. But to notice and linger with those things will help you carry your grief much more with much more ease and strength. Mm, mm. I love some of the poems that you have selected in in the book, and uh, David White is one of my favorites. I know that one of his uh, most resonant and uh, haunting poems uh, for me has been the one he titles The Well of Grief. Those mm-hmm. who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink. The secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Grief can be this overwhelming experience where it feels as if you are suffocating, yet you're still here. And it is this almost cloak that gets worn for a while until it's not there anymore. Can you talk about the time it takes to grieve and how people can learn to simply just be with that and move through the waves that are coming and going to be able to um, truly transcend the deepest of grief? You know, I think uh, um, grief just takes as long as it takes and it's so different for everybody and a lot of it depends on what's going on in your life at the time of a loss. So I lost my mother in 2001 and it wasn't till it was almost 16 years later when I was going to give a talk at the cemetery where her ashes were that I realized when I drove in the parking lot of the cemetery that it would have been her 100th birthday and I couldn't stop crying. I hadn't cried about the loss of my mother for years. It had been years. It was 16 years since she died. So that grief didn't go away. But the thing that's important to remember is that it changes in intensity, duration, and frequency over time. And one of the things I think that's a myth that can obstruct our grief is the idea that the first year is the worst. That may be true for some people, but for often for many people, it's the second year that's worse because the first year involves a lot of tasks, you know, creating the service and closing the material aspects of somebody's life. And often when we're coping, we can't deal. And when we're dealing, we can't cope and we have to choose. So when someone initially dies, Often there's a lot of coping that has to going on, has to go on, just the managing of life without that person. And then with the passage of time, we start to deal with the feelings that have accompanied that. And so it's it's really hard to say how long grief takes. I think I think of grief as a lifetime companion. I still have moments. My mother died about 20 years ago, where I can get teary about my mother. I don't think about her day to day, but I still can get teary. I still carry the loss of what didn't happen between us that couldn't have happened. And and that's very real. It's, so it's not necessarily the loss of her, but it's the loss of what never got materialized in that life. So I hate to put a timeline on anything because I think part of what's happened in our society is that people have compared themselves to these models of grief. And when they come up short, what I hear in my bereavement group is, I had a setback today. I thought I was doing great, but I, I've, I lost it. And I say, you didn't lose it. You got it. You had a moment where the full catastrophe of what you lost came searing in. That's not a setback. That's often called a sudden temporary upsurge of grief. And that's a very common thing 
for people to experience. It can happen when they're walking down a supermarket aisle and see a can of tuna fish that maybe their partner loved, and all of a sudden they're reminded, and they get this huge upsurge of grief. That's very normal. And that's where... And that's where the compassion and the kindness are truly critical. Yes. And knowing that this is normal. I mean, I think part of my goal in writing this book was to normalize grief. Um, The other thing I want to say about loss is, which I think is really important here, and it shows the complexity of grief. So when someone dies in the literature, it's called the primary loss. But often what happens is there are a myriad of secondary losses that accompany the loss of a person. And when I say secondary, I don't mean secondary in impact because sometimes the secondary loss can be more primary than the death of the person. So, for instance, a woman in one of my bereavement groups said the other night, almost as difficult as losing my partner, I've lost the identity of being a couple. That's a secondary loss. People often experience the loss of friendships. That's a secondary loss that has a very primary impact. People lose an economic stability. Some people lose their homes. Some people lose the job of caregiving their loved one, and their life is left without purpose and meaning. We we lose co-parents. We lose uh, people we were going to travel with. So there's a lot of losses that accompany the, the death of a person that often make the grief way more painful. And naming that is so important because it really demonstrates the complexity and depth of of grief. My guest today is Claire Willis, and she is the co-author of the book, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. Her co-author is Marnie Crawford Samuelson, and I invite you to go to their website, openingtogrief.com, and get your copy today. Again, that's openingtogrief.com. We'll be right back after these messages with more of the rich conversation with Claire Willis. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Do you want more, more joy, more abundance, more power and presence? How would it feel to have more loving relationships, more empowered community, greater fulfillment and life purpose? The 1111 Mastermind Community inspires, empowers, guides and supports transformation. Shift your mind, expand your heart, deepen insights, let go and chart a new course, dream a new dream. The 1111 Mastermind Community is an online portal for personal transformation and soulful expansion. Go to courses.1111mag.com. That's courses.1111mag.com. Change begins with you. Let it be simple, convenient, and transformative. The time is now. Step through the 1111 gateway. Courses.1111mag.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at IamSimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. 
We've all heard of courageous people who, after experiencing a painful loss, transform their suffering into passion, purpose, and community. The word passion derives from the Latin passus, meaning to suffer. Guided by a desire to help others avoid the suffering they've experienced, they devote themselves to a cause larger than themselves. How will you take your broken, open heart, your vulnerability and your tenderness, and allow it to restore your own well-being? At some point when you're ready, and only when you are ready and have enough energy to reach out, how will you allow your grieving heart to connect with others and make the world a little more welcoming? This is from the book, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace by Claire Willis and Marnie Samuelson. You can find out more about the book and Claire and Marnie at openingtogrief.com. I hope you will give yourself this little gift of a book and move through it and take your children, your families, your parents, your friends through this experience and through this conversation. I do believe it is the conversation that we need to have in our world in order to start moving through things that are being held down. Uh, Welcome back, Claire. I'd like to go back into what you were discussing earlier. You focused on losing someone uh, in, in terms of them passing away. But when loss happens, it can happen in any capacity. It can be a job. It can be a marriage. It can be um, a, a dream that was had. And there's this place of identity, and you spoke about it earlier in the show, where you keep looking back, and yet you look forward, and you catastrophize the future. How do you navigate shifting out of that old identity and into the not knowing of the new identity, but finding finding an anchor point to stand in in the process until the new begins. You know, the only reliable anchor, and I think this, this is the exact sentence from our book, is really kindness and self-compassion. And that is what will help you move through. I mean, I think there's, there are other, each chapter in our book is what I would hope would be a resource for people. And so I think being in the natural world often helps because it, it doesn't ask anything of us and it mirrors impermanence and it mirrors death and loss and rebirth. Um, there's a chapter in our book on writing. Writing can often help people navigate the difficult feelings of grief. Um, art can, and meditation. There's a number of resources, but the most important is to start with kindness and being able to welcome whatever comes until the new life comes in. And it really takes a lot of patience. As I was moving through my own experience of trauma and grief, I found uh, I had been an avid writer and I found that I couldn't write anymore, that I had nothing left to say. And it was because I couldn't even speak to what had taken place. I couldn't even explain it or talk about it. And I know you have a poem called Naming that you want to, to read, but if you could also talk about Uh, how grief can often change you from what you've been used to, to where you have to find something new, which I did. Art was one of those ways that I was able to subconsciously express what I was going through without having to have the words. So um, the question is, how can grief, say the question again, Simran, I just want to be clear I understand it. Sure. Um, in terms of letting go of the ways that you knew yourself to be and not being able to uh-huh. identify with words, how does one move forward in expressing um, what it is that they're going through? Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Well, um, one of the ways uh, is by art. Some people um, can create images that are healing for themselves. Um, I often hear people talking about taking bits of clothing from their loved one and sewing something that's beautiful. I think that the way through this is different for each person. You know, for some people, they start cooking and creating uh, different kinds of foods or foods of the, of, of the person they lost that they loved. Um, some people use meditation. A lot of people have used poetry because there's a way that poetry bypasses cognition. And there's something very powerful about reading a poem where someone has written about grief because you know in that moment that you're not alone and that somebody else has 
gone before you who's been able to express this as well as they have. Um, Often just sitting in a bereavement group can be incredibly helpful. I always say in my groups that silence is a full form of, of, of participation. And I've had people come into my groups and not talk for four or five weeks. And then when they're ready, they're full of of words, but there's a there's an incubation period before sometimes we can use language to describe our experience. In in my bereavement groups, I often hear people say, "I don't ever want to forget," and then they'll say something about a memory with their loved one. And there's a wonderful little practice called just I remember and fill in the blank, and then I remember again, fill in the blank. I remember, and. People have found that really um, satisfying. I think that um, one of the things that's important is that, and I was talking a little bit earlier about secondary losses, which are often invisible. And I think one of the things that's really important is to think about naming the losses that go with the primary loss. And I'd like to just read this short little poem, which I think is, is very poignant. It's called Naming by Carolyn Knight. If I name this grief, define it without guilt and redemption, call it drowning, desolation, call it fire and stone, then I'm bound to care for it like a stray cat I name that demands I feed him. He comes and goes, sometimes disappears for days and then returns, insisting that I remember. And I think that poem says something that's really important, which I actually mentioned at the beginning of the interview, that one of the things about COVID is that COVID has opened up griefs we haven't grieved fully before. And so, like the stray cat, grief will demand that we feed it, and it will may come and go, but it will return insisting that we remember. So I think the question is, what is the way that you can most easily be with your grief and allow your heart to open, remembering that grief is an expression of love with no place to go? Mm, I love that. Grief is an expression of love with no place to go. I think much of society follows Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's um, yeah pattern of grief. And I don't know that my own grief followed that pattern. Can you speak a little bit to, you know, is there a, is there a certain uh, ladder of grief that we're going to follow or is it going to be uniquely different for each person? Oh, thank you so much for this question. So I want to say that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work was revolutionary, and it was intended to describe the stages of grief that someone who is dying goes through. It was never intended to be overlaid on people who are grieving. So having said that, that there are different phases in her model that people may pass through and they may not. But it's very unusual for grief to ever go in a linear fashion. And one of the things that I say in the book, and I couldn't mean it more, that there is as many different expressions of grief as there are people who are grieving. There was a a column in the Boston Globe a few years ago written by a woman named Joan Wickersham, who's done a lot of, um, written a lot about grief. She had a brother, I think, who suicided. But she talks about going to a cocktail party and she sees this woman who lost her husband four years ago. And every time she meets somebody at the party, she brings up his name. There's another man at the party who lost his wife a year ago, and he has remarried her best friend. And she says, both of these people at this party are living with different expressions of grief. And I think that's the way we have to look at it, that there's no right way to grieve. Of course, there are ways that are self-destructive and hurtful that, would merit professional help. But for the most part, everybody knows their way through their own grief, even though they may not know they know their way. But to trust what comes with kindness and acceptance and self-compassion is probably the most important thing. There's actually a a poem in my book, an excerpt from a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye, which I would love to just read. 
Yes, go ahead. From kindness. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Hmm. That's beautiful. Just beautiful. beautiful. We only have a couple of minutes left, Claire, and I want to ask this um, just in case this does also speak to anyone. You are a Buddhist chaplain, and you have been in the field of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years. How have you found the Buddhist philosophy to support you in moving through the many losses that you have to face with uh, patients and people? Um, I think remembering, well, there are a couple of things. One is the truth is that there is suffering and everybody suffers. And so that I immediately feel a part of the human community by just remembering that. The other thing that's been really helpful for me is to remember the law of impermanence, that nothing is permanent. Um, My teacher talks about our preferences as being the source of all of our suffering that instead of just being with what is, we always have a preference for how we wish things were different. So what does it mean to really welcome the life that's yours and to work with it as it is, even though it's not what you might have wanted? In fact, it's likely not what you wanted, but it's what you've been given. So what is what is your grief asking of you? That's what I, I always say that to people who've been diagnosed with cancer or who are grieving. I'll say, what is it your grief is asking you to cultivate in yourself? What is it calling you to? What is your cancer requiring of you to do that you may not have been able to do before? And I think those are important questions because they're invitational and they open up, they open you up to possibilities in what can seem like an impossible situation. Thank you, Claire Willis, for being on 1111 Talk Radio. Thank you for this beautiful, heartfelt, healing, and open conversation when it comes to grief. Pick up your copy of the book, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. You can go to the website, openingtogrief.com. Until next week, I am Simran, in love, of love, with love, and as love. Be well. Thank you for opening your mind to a new reality, your heart to greater compassion, and your experience of aliveness with 1111 Talk Radio. Join host Simron next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern Time to step through the gateway of conscious living here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember, you are not on the journey. You are the journey.